1: The science of habit formation is that they run on a cue, routine, reward loop. Now, when I started getting into looking at how we create courageous habits, you know, I have been coming from an orientation for a while that courage is not about being fearless. There's no one who's fearless. It's bullshit. Like anybody who's who's trying to sell you fearless like like look at them askance, because it, it's not what happens. We can feel afraid, we can lean into it, we can transform self-doubt because we're leaning into it, but we don't like ever disaster proof our lives or or never have those cues that make us feel afraid or fear fear's going to come up if you're like a living, breathing human being. And I had been thinking that that had been integral to what I do for quite some time. And when I started researching habit formation, I realized that the research on habit formation completely aligns with that philosophy. If you have a habit and habits run on a cue, which is like a trigger routine, which is like a response you go into and reward, which is the place you're trying to get to, um, to alleviate whatever the cue is brought up, the, the place to change a habit is not with the queue which is what a lot of us do, right? Like, we think that if only we can, like, um, eliminate the, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, it's January when we're talking right now, so, like, the diet culture, right? Like, if I just don't have sweets in my house, I'll lose the weight, you know, like, eliminating the queue If I just avoid that person that I don't get along with, then I won't go into... Our argument mode with them. We spend a lot of time trying to eliminate the cues. And that's also where some of our fantastical thinking, if I had enough money, for instance, then my life would be perfect can come from. But in the research on habit formation, the place where you can actually affect the most change is with the routine. It's not with the cue. So basically, I can sum that up as saying: hard shit's gonna happen. We're gonna have to deal with that. So how do you wanna deal with it? How do you want to respond?
0: Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Kate, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. Love being here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you and I go way back. We've met before at places like the World Domination Summit, and it turns out that you have been a longtime listener of The Unmistakable Creative, and uh, you have a new book out uh, called The Courage Habit, which uh, I got to get a sneak peek at, uh, which we will get into in quite a bit of detail. But before we get there, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and where what impact did where you grew up end up having on your life and the career path that you've chosen?
1: Mm, okay, Loving this question, which I know is a newer one you folded into <laughs> the interview series. Um, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, which is different than Kansas City, Kansas. Important to know if you grow up in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and I would say that um, l- the the two parents that I was born to somehow through some weird cosmic machinations or something, who knows what? Um, you know, my mother was an eighteen year old feminist from a small town and was a waitress at a diner that my dad, who was 33 at the time, um, would go to. And my dad is like a very far right Rush Limbaugh listening, (laughs) um, you know, conservative. And I don't totally know how the two of them, (laughs) you know, got together, but they did. And what I would, and then, you know, we're living in Missouri, which, um, i'd say that the the area has this like actual very like liberal hub and i think that what it gave me was this ability to start seeing um problems through different lenses if that makes sense like i don't uh, like i'm pretty open about the fact that i don't agree with conservative politics Uh but i understand not understand as in like oh it's okay but understand as in i i literally understand with clarity the frames of reference that they draw from or I believe I do anyway some conservatives would probably say I don't um and I think that that's um something that contributed to to just being able to do the work that I'm doing like thinking critically about the bigger picture of what someone's struggling with the smaller pieces and I think I'm really really fascinated by humans Mm -hmm. I mean, humans are, are, are just really, really interesting. Why do we do all the dumb shit that we do? (laughs) Why do we rise at the moment when all the the cards in the deck are stacked against us? Um, humans are really, really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. So that's the contribution I think that, uh, Kansas city, Missouri made to who I am today.
0: So being somebody that, um, pretty much disagrees with sort of conservative politics and having a dad who was ultra conservative, what impact did that have on the relationship that you have with your dad?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, So when I was younger, we argued a lot more. And I mean, we still cannot talk about, you know, the current presidential administration. It's just like kind of an off topic thing. But um, what's interesting to me is that though my dad is, he's very religious and um, conservative. um, I always saw him treat people with respect and don't get me wrong this is not like giving somebody a pass in your family for their belief system like like for sure um if any political issue comes up and I'm, I'm like actually i don't think that is a respectful political stance to take the personal is political it is something that we talk about but i definitely always saw him looking out for people who might need like a lift up an example would be um with cashiers at the grocery store. If he knew I could watch him with a cashier at the grocery store, if that cashier was like really having a kind of rough day, kind of tired, you could just tell was kind of down. My dad just has this thing where he starts engaging with the person to try to draw them out, make a joke, get to know them a little bit. And that's something that just really rubbed off on me that that we are not all one or the other. We are not these like binary sort of you know. It's it's either one one position or another. We're we're all incredibly nuanced and we are all incredibly complicated human beings.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: what misperceptions do you think that people who uh, don't fall into the the camp of your father have about people like your father?
1: Oh, um, hmm, probably that they would. Probably that, that, well, I think the big misperception is, um, not seeing it through the lens of story. So I'm going to back up just like a little bit here. So like, okay. Um. I, for, for for my own part, kind of went, you know, this, you know, political perspectives of conservative, I'm not getting it. Da, da, da. And then I was a college professor for a while, actually. And I taught the work of George Lakoff. And that work really uh, shifted how I saw things. Lakoff has this, this model where he says, we interpret politics through stories. And in interpreting politics through stories, he has these two models. And for liberals, he calls it the nurturant parent model and for uh, conservatives he calls it the dominant father model I think I believe I'm getting those right God I hope I'm getting those right And so you know people will say how is it possible that liberals and conservatives can have uh, these these wildly divergent opinions about things like abortion Liberals are going it's hypocritical of you conservatives to say that a woman cannot have an abortion yet you won't fund uh, prenatal care for women who do get pregnant who are carrying the pregnancy to term or you won't fund daycare. You won't fund preschools, you know, like you won't fund social services that support that woman. And so liberals are going, I don't get what you're talking about here, but the conservatives are coming from this dominant father model. And this dominant father model is all about understanding that there is a leader a.k.a. that dominant father, and you obey what the leader says to do, and you must be moral in your behavior. And if you're not moral, you deserve the consequences of what you get. So that's how it is, at least in Lakoff's perspective, and I I would say it makes sense to me as well, that a conservative will go, I'm not going to say that it's okay for a woman to have an abortion because in my moral universe, you reap what you sow, you get punished, And the punishment is you have to take care of that baby. And by the way, you have to take care of it with no prenatal funding from me. No, you know, tax dollars spent on preschools. Mm. And so I think that it's it's an interesting nuance to look at the people that we encounter in our lives and go actually like everybody's got something that they do that somebody else would actually disagree with and what is the the story behind why it is that they behave in the way that they do and of course in my work you know some of I'm, of it I'm going it's a habitual response and conditioning of course plays a part in that if you grow up in a family that has a particular political point of view you're going to be conditioned around that po- particular point of view I grew up in a family where I had two parents with two wildly divergent points of view and um <laughs> And there's still a part of me that goes, and my point of view is right over on the (laughs) anti Trump, more liberal side of things. But you know, that's neither here nor there for (laughs) habit formation.
2: Hmm.
0: you know it, it's interesting because I, I you know i have friends very close friends um who are, are trump voters uh and you know my, my initial perception is every trump voter is basically a, a racist like you know redneck white person until i got to see the jacksonville jaguars owner shaheed khan who's a pakistani billionaire voted for trump and i'm like okay you know what i, I got to admit i can see his logic behind that decision um But I'm curious, you know, so you've talked about the relationship with your father. I'm curious what uh, impact the relationship with your mother and her perspective on this has had on your own worldview.
1: Well, my mother is um, she she taught me the feistiness. I mean, I definitely think I get like feistiness in a good way from her. And, um, you know, she was she was just really like like my my uh, in the divorce joint custody, right? So, uh, you know, a divorce, of course, being inevitable, right? With with two parents this wildly divergent, um, you know, and, and it was in the divorce that my father could take us to church, you know, every other week. And I would come back from church and as a very young kid and sometimes say this or that thing that somebody said at church, and my mom would just be like, that's that's like crap you know this is wrong not anything about loving people but just if there was anything i think there was one day where like there was a sermon about like gay you know marriage or of course it would be called a lifestyle um back in the 90s um was was wrong and it was just this very like um you know coming home and talking to her about this and 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 her going like what is wrong with two people loving each other Like, what is actually wrong with that? We live in a world filled with so much hate. What is wrong with two people loving each other? And then me kind of going, oh, like that completely sinks down into, um, I guess, an internalized value system that made more sense to me. Mm -hmm. So it it just, I don't know. I think that I got the feistiness from her. And I think that I got this sort of uh, don't suffer fools gladly, uh, question things. and she, you know, she probably didn't love that I got that from her when I was a teenager. But it, it definitely is something that carried with me. And I think the courage piece, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I learned how to go, I'm afraid of this or that thing, but I'm going to lean into it anyway from my mother, because she did that a lot. After the divorce, she got a college education by going to night school. Um, you know, she bought a house and rehabbed it from the inside out. You know, it was all the way down to the studs. She did a lot of really great stuff that I saw modeled for me that taught me that there aren't limitations and that hustle and hard work can actually get you really far.
2: Mm hmm.
0: So walk me through how you get from Kansas to doing the work that you're doing today. And, you know, what in particular prompted your interest in this entire idea of courage?
2: Hmm.
1: Okay. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of like fast track right on through a couple of things. So I I go to I go to college outside of Chicago. Um, the earliest indications that this might be my life were showing up even then. I double majored in English and Sociology with a minor in Women's Studies. So I'm I'm fascinated uh, in people and stories and how we put the two together, how we understand um, the ways that people work, and then I went. To California to get my master's degree in English. And I I thought, okay, I'm gonna be an English professor. This is the life that I want. And I, I ended up finding out that actually being a professor, what was I was most interested in was how people lived their lives. Like I wanted to hang out with my students in office hours, you know? <laughs> I didn't want to grade papers or correct a comma. I wanted to hang out with people during office hours and I was really curious about how they lived their lives. I heard about life coaching while I was still in grad school. I originally dismissed it as I'm too young. You know, I had this perception that you have to be perfect in order to like hold space for other people. And it really wasn't until years later, I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do a life coach training because this keeps being something that's of interest to me. I do a training and, and I'm still just in this space of like, it's a side hobby. And um, the courage piece came in actually when I went to Italy for a summer and I had like taken a break over the summer from my college teaching job, which was a total financial risk. And who knows, maybe I would hate being in Italy. You never know, right? Gelato can't cure everything, Mm. but I was there. And, um, while I was there, I posted something on Facebook and in, you know, the great gift to me, somebody posted some wet blanket comment about, you know, well, not everybody can go to Italy to like enjoy their lives. And the lucky thing about that was that the person who posted that was somebody who lived in a far less expensive part of the country who made twice the money I did, who had paid vacation time built into their job. Um, and it suddenly hit me that I had been just as afraid of as this person had been to do something like take time off to, to travel. But but that courage was the thing I was willing to practice. And that's what opened me up around the idea that I want to live in a world where people practice courage. And if I want to live in that world, I got to be the first one who's who's going to do it. It's not something you have. It's not something you you're born with. It's something that you have to look at and practice. Mm,
0: wow. Um, so we will get into all of that, but I, I think I want to spend a little bit of time talking about something that you and I were um, chatting about prior to officially hitting record, and that is, you know, my own skepticism around life coaches, which you talk <laughs> about uh, on the show. Um, and I think you know it, it's important that we dissect this because. I, you know, again, I think there are plenty of people who are doing amazing work. Some of many of them have been guests on our show. Uh, that being said, I, I'm curious, you know, kind of what your perspective is on my own skepticism.
1: Hmm. Well, I think it's warranted, first of all, and I think it's healthy. And I think it's good, because it is um, an unlicensed and unregulated industry. And frankly, I, I think that the the greatest move forward for the life coaching industry would be for the powers that be in life coaching to actually get together with the board of behavioral sciences, which is the regulatory board, at least in the United States for psychotherapy and sit down together and go, here are the guidelines. Here's who's a fit for coaching. Here's who's a fit for therapy. Let's actually make this clear for everyone so that there is no having to figure it out on your own, which is where the coaching industry is right now. Um, I think from my own perspective and as somebody who runs a program that certifies life coaches, I think that you've got to be trained. I think that you've got to know how to refer out. Um, You've got to actually practice the work with integrity, which means that if someone is showing signs of maybe having a clinical diagnosis, that you don't keep trying to like, I don't know, be like a guru or something. And I think that you have to do your own work. So you can't just go like life is sparkly, which is kind of how the Facebook ads tend to play out. Right. First, it was my life sucked until I hit one, two, three secret. Right. Like there's some secret plan that gets uncovered. And then now life is great. And here we are. And I I just I, I think that that kind of a model just doesn't. Actually, express much about what coaching really is. And I also don't think that it's very helpful for humans. <laughs> like, therapists never proclaim to have a one, two, three step answer in a Facebook ad, at least none that I've seen.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that largely is, is why I have the skepticism that I do is because I see ads like that, because I read stories like that, because I read about pages like that. And sometimes not only that, they're from people who've been wildly successful in other areas of their life.
2: hmm. hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think coaching is all about how we make meaning and tell stories and put our lives events into a context. And there's a craft to it. Um, for sure it is not just uh, we were joking right before we hit record about the the daily show clip of Dimitri Martin mm. <laughs> a life coach is like having expe- expensive friends with ha- uh, expensive friend with hands and, and he's limited like credentials sitting in, yeah and sitting in the corner like eating life cereal which was just the perfect thing um, so it, it there is an actual craft to it um, for one thing it's not like having a friend because in friendships I would hope it'd be reciprocal right like if you and I Friends, I don't get to just like show up and talk about my life the whole time, and you don't say anything. And, and blah, blah, blah. Um, a life coach helps a client get clear on what they want, why they've been stuck. Um, particularly for me, the role that fear-based habits have played, and then start clarifying the next steps and taking action. And coaching mirrors therapy in that regard. Um, but for sure, we've got to work with clients who are functioning well in their lives and not someone who has a diagnosable mental illness. And, um, I, I am not happy with seeing the rise of different niches of coaching where I don't think that the people who are behind those niches are actually qualified. And I'm thinking in cases of like sexual trauma, like Like that's the work that somebody who went to an advanced training program that had oversight that has collegial relationships they can lean on at all times if they get stuck should be doing. Not someone who had three months of um, a training program somewhere, you know, same thing with like drug and alcohol coaching or eating disorder coaching. You know, these are things that are complex and coaches should not be tackling those topics. I don't tackle those topics.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, Well, I think that makes a perfect setup to start getting into the meat of what I want to spend our time talking about, which is um, your book. But I want to start with this whole idea of your most courageous self and how you define that and how other people figure out what that is in their lives.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. So I think of a most courageous self as being a part of ourselves that we're actually reigning in. So like for you, I don't, you know, I don't know this. You can tell me if this is accurate, but for you, it might've been the part of you that like. Toed the line for a little while you know doing the standard you know nine to five job kind of ticking off the boxes and wanting to do something more wanting to get into blogging podcasting growing your company getting a book out there but like for a while it feels like well i want that but i have to be realistic or i want that but there's no way that i could i want that but i'm not good enough to do it so the most courageous self aspect of the Courage Habit book that I've written is about really identifying what that piece is. What is it that you want to vision into? And what is it that you're trying to shift in your life? And that can be anything from a really tangible thing, like, you know, I want to write a book, or I want to travel the world. But it could also be, I notice that I get stuck in um, patterns of people pleasing, and I want to stop doing that in my life, or my marriage is on the rocks, and I know that something needs to change. And um, I'm going to need some more courageous aspect of who I've been to step forward if I want that to happen.
0: Mm. Um, all right. So how do we get there from there to the habits? And I mean, the idea of courage as a habit and the idea that it's not something that we're born with and it's something that we can cultivate and practice. I appreciate because to me that that is so indicative of the fact that, you know, we can with a growth mindset actually change this. Um, so I want to look at this through a couple of, of different lenses. One is, you know, like what does the science show behind the idea of courage as a habit? And two, you know, can you you know tell it to us through the lens of actual stories where you've seen this become a habit in people's lives?
1: Yes. Okay. Both of those. So first I'll, I'll talk about the science piece and then I'll talk about an example of, um, I'll go, I'll give the example because I think it's harder when it's not tangible of like wanting to shift a marriage. So, The science of habit formation is that they run on a cue, routine, reward loop. Now, when I started getting into looking at how we create courageous habits, you know, I have been coming from an orientation for a while that courage is not about being fearless. There's no one who's fearless. It's bullshit. Like anybody who's who's trying to sell you fearless like like look at them askance, because it, it's not what happens. We can feel afraid, we can lean into it, we can transform self-doubt because we're leaning into it, but we don't like ever disaster-proof our lives or or never have those cues that make us feel afraid, or fear. fear's going to come up if you're like a living, breathing human being. And I had been thinking that that had been integral to what I do for quite some time. And when I started researching habit formation, I realized that the research on habit formation completely aligns with that philosophy. If you have a habit and habits run on a cue, which is like a trigger routine, which is like a response you go into and reward, which is the place you're trying to get to, um, to alleviate whatever the cue is brought up, the, the place to change a habit is not with the queue which is what a lot of us do, right? Like, we think that if only we can, like, um, eliminate the, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, it's January when we're talking right now, so, like, the diet culture, right? Like, if I just don't have sweets in my house, I'll lose the weight, you know, like, eliminating the queue If I just avoid that person that I don't get along with, then I won't go into, Our argument mode with them. We spend a lot of time trying to eliminate the cues. And that's also where some of our fantastical thinking, if I had enough money, for instance, then my life would be perfect, can come from. But in the research on habit formation, the place where you can actually affect the most change is with the routine. It's not with the cue. So basically, I can sum that up as saying, hard shit's going to happen. We're going to have to deal with that. So, how do you want to deal with it? How do you want to respond? Most of us go into these routines that aren't very healthy and that they're fear-based without really thinking about it to alleviate stress. Mm-hmm. And what I'm interested in is how we can start moving into going into a courage-based habit or what the research indicates builds emotional resilience, which is another way of saying courage. Mm-hmm. So as these are coming up, we experience those cues often without thinking we go into routine, self-sabotage or pessimism, but we can change the routine. So let's go into an example. Um, Let's say that somebody has a marriage that is on the rocks. This is something that's come up actually with startling frequency um, in my coaching practice. And the person is wanting to go, well, what is it that I can do that's going to shift something? And it's an orientation away from trying to be like the perfect person who uses I statements and, you know, never starts an argument and into um, the response. So when you feel that cue of stress and your habitual routine has been to yell, scream, argue, because you get to the reward of some catharsis about that stress, or it makes you feel a little more in control to have the upper hand in the argument. That's a temporary reward, and it doesn't really do much for you in the long term. So how can we move into something that is more courage based? And what the research has shown me is that it's about accessing the body, looking at those frames or stories that we use to define our lives and reframing them, and then reaching out and having some kind of um, external community or relationship that shares that value of, of doing this work or a, a, what I call a courage-driven value.
4: Mm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
3: com slash ACAST.
0: Okay, so let's get into each one of these areas uh, in a bit more depth. Um, specifically, let's start with accessing the body. What do you mean by that? And how do people apply that concept in their lives, uh, particularly in the context of courage?
1: Well, fear isn't logical, it's primal, right? Like when you get afraid, what are some of the things that come up for you?
0: Shortness of breath, panic, you know, uh, <clears throat> heart rate, you know, going faster. Uh, mind starts racing through like ruminating thoughts and worst case scenarios.
1: Right. And then it's like, if that just keeps going and going and going, you're normal, by the way. Here, here's the good news. You're normal. You're like everybody else. It's the same thing that happens for everybody. Mm. It's like fear isn't logical. It's primal. It starts in the body. So we've got to deal with it in the body. We've got to actually attend to the fear sensations that are arising. So when these these things are coming up, What I'm saying is that before you can move to any cognitive behavioral sort of intervention, the research says that you've got to do something that attends to what you're feeling in the body. So it could be as simple as deep breathing, right, which is everybody's favorite meditation. But I actually say that you can expand it outward. You could walk. You could exercise. You could have sex, <laughs> you could dance, you could um, do what's what's they call it in uh, laughter yoga, or I call it a laugh session where you just laugh kind of maniacally, frankly, until it takes over and becomes the real thing. But you do something to attend to the body's response to whatever it is that you're feeling afraid of.
0: Mm hmm. Okay, so we talked about the body Um, one, you know, where do people screw that up? Like, you know, you've talked about a lot of things. I mean, I I honestly think that um, part of I know this part of the reason I surf and snowboard is because it calms my nerves Mm -hmm. It stops the the logical, you know, thing that goes on in my head.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, well, so having a regular practice, of course, is a really, really great thing. But I think where people get it wrong the most is usually when they start trying to go to talking themselves down. Don't do this. You know, like if you're about to go on for a speaking event, right? Like, don't panic, don't panic, don't. Pa- it, it, it's like that actually, for most people is probably going to cue up more panic. Whereas um, going into the wings of the auditorium where nobody can see you and doing, I don't know, like a yoga roll all the way up where you you know stretch your hands up to the sky or something that is more body-based, where you actually just do a body scan, what's going on in my head, my shoulders, my heart, my, my back, my legs, my feet, something that attends to the body is going to be much more helpful for someone. And, um, and, and I think too that it's that wanting to look for a quick fix and not deal with the discomfort of the body that can really get us stuck.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I before speaking engagement, I always put on a, a pair of headphones and I have a playlist that I just go through like when I'm three to four minutes before going on stage. Um, and I notice that that always creates the, the sort of energy that I'm looking for. Uh, we're talking about the body and you're talking about quick fixes. And, um, I, and this may be sort of, you know, out of your scope of expertise, but I, I want to ask about it. What are your thoughts on, on things like psychedelics, plant medicine, you know, the things that we see a lot of ha- happening nowadays.
1: Mm, um, I I mean like I'll have a glass of wine (laughs) At the end of a hard day Um, Actually this is a somewhat Like ridiculous admission I've never smoked pot So I don't know that I'm (laughs) qualified to talk about it Fair like enough. literally and usually the first thing that someone says to me when i say i've never smoked pot is let's get you high but <laughs>
2: I've
1: never i've never smoked pot so uh i i think that it's something to watch in case it becomes a pattern sure. i definitely have seen just with wine for instance that um You know, I mean it there was a period of my life and I actually stopped drinking for six months in twenty seventeen because there was a period in my life where it was like every day it was like five o'clock, let's pop open a bottle of wine. Oh, that's so much better. And it it got to this point where it was like, Wait, I used to know how to relax without popping open a bottle of wine. What's that about? And uh I think it just had become a habit. It just it's easy, right? It's easier than having to attend to the body or haul my ass out to go to yoga. Yeah. So, um, I'm curious though now about with that question coming up, I really want to know your answer.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, I, I have been experimenting with microdosing mushrooms, um, based on the recommendation of a few friends because of, of, you know, having dealt with depression issues. And I have a lot of friends who say they've gotten completely off their meds just by microdosing. So I was like, all right, I'll give it a try. And I've found that it's been really interesting. Like it, you know, you're not doing something that is, you know, throwing you your biochemistry so out of whack that you can't focus or concentrate. In fact, I'm getting like these incredibly deep sort of flow state levels of concentration when I do it. Um, so that's what. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's validity to it. Uh, I think that I think it's also, you know, like it could get dangerous, too, when you kind of take it to an extreme. Like, you know, I, I think I've never hidden the fact that I've, I've u- utilized my fair share. You know, I've experimented. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: experimented i like yeah. it yeah well all for all for the good of citizen science right like to, to report your findings back <laughs> yeah, to everybody exactly. make the world a better place <laughs> yeah totally totally yeah no um actually i have to say that of all the responses i've ever gotten after i admitted that i'd never smoked pot what you just described was the most intriguing to me more intriguing than let's get you high <laughs>
0: Um, Well, you know, funny enough, I I think that actually makes a really nice segue um, into this whole idea of of listening without attachment. Um, Can you, you know, define that for us and then talk about how we actually do it?
1: Okay. All right. So, first, I'm just going to like. again, in this theme of kind of bucking the trend of, of traditional life coaching, like this idea of like identifying an inner critic and telling it to bleep off. I don't know if I can say the F word on this show yeah, or not. Can. All right, there you go. Um, <laughs> telling your inner critic to fuck off or that you're going to kill, kick it, fear's ass or any of that stuff. It doesn't work. So, you know, Karen Horney is this noted feminist scholar, and she had this idea that in relationships, we basically um, either Try to, when we have dysfunction in relationships, we try to either uh, please or attack, or, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll back, sorry, I'm completely losing my train of thought now. Um, we either go into uh, pleasing mode, ignoring mode, or attack mode. So we, in in a dysfunctional relationship with one's internalized voice that says, you suck, I think we often do the same things and it doesn't really work. So we either try to ignore that voice and pretend it doesn't exist, or we try to please it. Like if we could only do it perfect enough, it wouldn't come up for us anymore, or we attack it. And that's the whole like kick fear's ass meme, you know, um, hustle and hustle and hustle and you know tell your fear to shut up along the way. It doesn't work. So what we've got to do is, gotta listen without attachment which means you gotta actually go what's going on that this voice within me says this stuff to me like what's it actually saying and why is it actually trying to say it and I think fear is a wound I think if something comes up that says I'm not good enough it's because we're afraid of rejection or we're afraid of what's going to happen if we go after something we really want and we fail and learning how to listen but without getting attached I Interestingly, given that this has swerved in the direction of wine and psychedelics, one of the lenses I'll use sometimes is, you know, if you ran into a drunk person on the street who was, like, yelling and screaming at you and slurring their words and saying that your hair was blue, your hair was blue, your hair was blue, you wouldn't go, oh, he must be right, my hair's blue and I suck. You know, you'd go, okay, like, I can hear the words this person is saying, but without getting attached and thinking that they're true.
0: Mm So I understand that intellectually, um, I think the, the place that I struggle with it would be actual application of it. Right. So like you have this voice Mm -hmm. in your head, you have this thought and I'm like, I want to stop thinking about this thing or I want to stop thinking about this person. Why the hell is this still on my mind? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you know, like, you know, what do you say to that?
1: Well, let's dive in there. Like I would turn the question around, like, why is this person still on, on your mind? Like, what's it doing for you to keep ruminating on this?
0: nothing really
1: but it is like maybe uh, here i'll throw out a couple possibilities i've heard people say to that question like maybe you're ruminating on it because you want to control it or maybe you're rumin- and by the way with me throwing these out i'm not trying to project onto you i'm just yeah. here are some ideas so maybe you're ruminating on it because you want to control it Maybe you're ruminating on it because your brain is thinking, you know, if I can just find an answer for this, then I can drop the worry, which is, of course, the fallacy, right? That there's some answer that if you could only get it, then you would not feel worry. You know, maybe there's something going on for you around this relationship reminding you of another relationship that you have. And what's really going on is you want to figure out this other relationship, but but this thing with this external person reminds you of it there are a lot of different possibilities but there's probably some legitimate reason for why you're ruminating on it um and this is of course aside from if there's a biochemical issue i know there are biochemical disorders that can cause people to ruminate i'm talking about just like you me i mean ruminating on something, worrying yeah. it to death. And I think that's, at least for me, when I'm really, really thinking over and over and over ruminating about a relationship or something else, yeah. um, it's because I'm actually wanting control. I'm wanting to find some way to like, be beyond judgment, you know, feel like i have the upper hand in a disagreement, find a solution when it feels really hard to find a solution. There's some reason why I'm doing it.
0: Yeah. I think the answer thing, the search for an answer is is really uh, probably a big part of it. Now that that you've mentioned it. I never mm-hmm. about, I'd never thought about it that way, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really we live in a culture that like really pushes the idea of answers. We're, we're drinking, you know, the Kool-Aid every single day with every single commercial. Right. It's, it's really natural that like then our brains get conditioned into going, you know, I'm going to noodle this until I finally hit on something that is my like aha moment. Oh, mm. there I go. Instead of going to like, Hey, there probably isn't an answer or whatever it is going to be is going to unfold with time, which actually with me saying those two sentences, that kind of moves us into the next thing that the research was showing, which is that we've got to really like listen without attachment, but Mm -hmm. concurrently reframe any limiting stories that arise.
0: Yeah. So how do we do that? And what have you found as, as limiting stories that have arisen for, you know, people that you've worked with and how have they changed those stories and what changes in your life as a result of reframing limiting stories
1: well first i just want to say i'm not talking about affirmations yet another thing i'm not a fan of in coaching like oh my god um So what I've seen people do with reframing limiting stories is this moving in small incremental steps. So it's not very helpful for most people to go. I'm going to be I am wealthy, healthy, fulfilled, and I'm going to have an orgasm tonight, you know, like going straight (laughs) from like I'm broke, single, sick and unemployed to I'm wealthy, healthy, fulfilled and going to have an orgasm tonight. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't work, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, cause there's some part of our brains, I think that is always going like, bullshit. you're a liar. Yeah. <laughs> I'm calling bullshit. Right. So what I've seen happen more often, for instance, um, like with someone who says, I want to go into entrepreneurship, not so very healthy for them to go to like, I'll be a millionaire next year, six figures in six weeks, right? Like all those Facebook ads, what is healthy for them to do is to go, I'm willing to follow my curiosity. Like fear is going to go, don't even, you suck. There's no point. And then the reframe can become, I I don't know what I'm doing. And this could be a failure. And I'm willing to follow my curiosity. Not build the six-figure entrepreneurial empire, but I'm just willing to follow my curiosity. Mm -hmm. So reframing in small pieces is... Um, really, really critical to the success at that. And I also wanted to say, too, that, I mean, this is like something that's been empirically studied. If you look at um, different offshoots of therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, narrative therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, there are research studies that have been done that utilize reframing as a legitimate strategy. And one of the sectors that has most embraced reframing is actually in the executive, um, you know, corporate level, really asking people at the executive and leadership level to start reframing how they think about problems. Because when you're stuck in this is a problem, or, you know, like that rumination that we were just talking about, it's really hard to get out of that and start thinking about why is this coming up? where might there be a wound or something that I'm trying to sort of figure out in all of this to avoid stress and pain? How do I go into what I actually want to stretch into? So it's like if you're ruminating about somebody not liking you, I'm not saying you're doing that, but just as a hypothetical, Mm. and you want to stretch into not worrying so much about whether or not they like you Not as helpful to go into, they love me and they're going to be the one who gives me the orgasm tonight. More helpful to actually go into, okay, I'm kind of curious about why we have this conflict and I'm willing to be curious. And then going into, okay, now that I've gotten into a space of being curious about this conflict, um, maybe there's some way that I just won't be in conflict with this person any longer. And then moving into, I notice that when I think of them judging me in this particular area, that's where the hook is for me to worry about whether or not I'm liked. It's it's really incremental moves. It's not a big one.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Sweeney. I wanted to tell you about our new online course called Distraction Mastery. In this course, you'll learn exactly how to eliminate time-robbing distractions, master your attention, and get in the zone on command. In under 10 minutes a day, you'll learn a proven, powerful framework for killing distractions and developing unshakable focus based on proven research and experience. These are the exact strategies that I personally use to write two books and hundreds of articles. So, to learn more, visit courses.unmistakablecreative.com. Again, that's courses.unmistakablecreative.com. So I want to talk briefly about, uh, failures, setbacks, adversity, because I mean, there's no way you're going to go through life, especially if you're actually fully engaged with your life without bad shit happening, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you're going to get dumped, you're going to get fired, <clears throat> you know, you're going to lose money. Like all these things are inevitable parts of our lives. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, in your work, um, particularly how, how do, how have you found people reframing those types of situations in their lives?
1: Mm, I'm so glad you brought that up because, um, this is also important, by the way, like <laughs> people who like have grown up under systemic oppression and almost everybody can find some category where that is true or has impacted their lives. Like they should not be like just going, oh, it doesn't even matter that, like, you know, I was discriminated against based on my gender identity. It's it's fine, you know. Um, so with the reframing that that people have done when they've gone through really, really traumatic shit. Um, First, the space we have to be in is empathy, which is why I think the research really indicates that we got to stop and access the body. Mm -hmm. Like if you lose a job, if you encounter failure, if you encounter challenge and you try to move straight into listening to what your critic is saying about this and pushing yourself not to get attached and reframe, you've just bypassed the part where like maybe you need to be really angry because it's bullshit that that injustice happened to you. Or maybe you need to cry because there's grief that's involved in this, in losing something or failing or encountering some kind of loss. Like this is the piece where accessing the body is so important um, because that, that place of processing through how we feel about the things that we have survived and how we choose to process through those things can pave the way for how we pivot from there.
0: Mm-hmm. So that takes us into the idea of um, reaching out and creating community. So let's talk about that. Um, you know, I have a lot of ideas around this, um, particularly like I'm really interested um, right now. One of the things that's really on my mind is um, how dangerous our dependency of, uh on technology has gotten for our sense of community. So I want to talk about that because I'm really curious to hear your perspective on it. But let's start with what your research shows first uh, around this idea and how it relates to the idea of courage.
1: Okay, so um, reaching out and creating community is is vital. I mean, for for sure, there's a treasure trove of research about how like, if you want to live a long life, if you want to be healthier and have a more robust immune system, if you want to have success with a goal, the quality of your social networks, um, and your relationships is really key. Particularly, though, with something that is um, a deep dream or something you want to go after, with practicing more courage and developing that emotional resilience to manage fear and change habits, you need community for a few reasons. Um, one, you need community because fear thrives in isolation and inevitably. At some point, whatever your particular critic says to you about why you suck and can't do it, it's going to get you eventually. If you don't have other people around you to remind you like, hey, hold on, don't get attached by that. How could we reframe it? Try accessing the body. You know, let's let's get into some support. Another reason you need community is because it's just more fun. And um, one of the most interesting pieces of research I ran across related to goal setting was that when people set goals that have um, uh, ripple effect benefits for other people in the community, not only did they have more fun, they, the self-reported you know, measures of satisfaction were higher for people who had set goals that had some kind of an advantage, not just for them, but for others around them, they had more fun and they were more likely to achieve the goal. So like if you start a podcast and it's all about like, let it be the this is my podcast show, you're not going to have as much fun or and you're, you're less likely to have it be a success than if you start a podcast and you're like, my goal is to raise awareness about this issue that a lot of different people struggle with. It's it's amazing to me that you're going to be more successful um, with social social, uh, relationships in mind. And yet at the same time, it's not a surprise if you look at all the ways that positive social relationships benefit our lives.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, so let's, let's talk briefly about this, this notion of technology, because I, I've been really wrestling with, with a uh, thought lately that our, our digital lives are becoming so prevalent that they're getting in the way of our actual lives. Like they're such huge parts of our life. Um, you know, at you know as part of of uh, a bet with my content strategist Kingshook like he wasn't starting a project that I'd been you know he'd been telling me about for a year and I said all right I'll tell you what if you start the project and get it off the ground by the end of February I will delete all the dating apps from my phone for a month just because <laughs> um I, you know, my theory is that this has actually caused me to be disengaged with the world around me. And within a, in three days, I'm already convinced that that is absolutely true. And it got me thinking about our our digital habits at large, because I I have a deep concern that our digital networks and our communities online are masquerading for a real sense of connection and ultimately leaving us very isolated. Um, and I, I think that, uh, I think it's a sad state of affairs. Like I think that we have to prioritize seeing people in person way more than we do right now.
1: Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of the TED radio hour. And I unfortunately in this moment am forgetting the name of the person who was interviewed. Ah, but I I mean everything that um that is coming out about what tech the the shadow side of technology is in alignment with what you just shared. And I would also say too that um you know, technology encourages, encourages us not to access the body, right? Technology encourages us to constantly be sort of reacting at, to all the stuff that we see online. And I think that we have to really go, especially if we want to change. It's so funny that this started off on politics, and I'm going to swing back over there again. I think that one of the biggest reasons we need to develop courage is to change Our ability to respond in the middle of this political chaos that we're all in right now, Mm -hmm. like we need a more courageous world, not just so that like my individual clients can can live great lives. We need a more courageous world because we're living in the middle of political chaos and people are getting fried right? Like people are going, I can't even open up Facebook anymore, because it's just more bad news. So it's like, all right, if you want to actually be an aware, informed citizen, you've got to do something that allows you to process through the fear you feel when like yet another right is being taken away from a group. Um, And I think that the habits that we have around our phones also feed into that cue routine reward loop, we feel stress. So we pull out our phones as our routine to get the reward of decreased stress, but it's only a temporary reward. If we would shift up that habit and make it, I feel stress, I actually get in some kind of real-time capacity with someone who is aligned with my values around how I want to live, then I'm going to get that reward of decreased stress, but it's going to have a much bigger ripple effect and a much bigger impact on our lives.
2: Mm, Wow
0: all right so let's finish this up by talking about this idea of of reflection um on your courageous life and what you mean by that like how do you define that and how do people incorporate this into their lives
1: can you unpack the question a little bit for me like what piece of it
0: um you know i mean what exactly do you mean by reflecting on your courageous life and how do we do that like and what are the benefits of it like what is the purpose of it
1: okay so like taking time to reflect i think if the the way that i wrote the courage habit book was to mirror the coach client relationship so at the beginning of a coach client relationship you're actually establishing a focus for the coaching time together, whether it's three months or six months. Um, And at the beginning of The Courage Habit, I ask the reader to think about who their most courageous self is, what they really deeply want. And then we start getting into what have you felt afraid about on the way to trying to let this most courageous self come forward? And how can you start moving some of these um, courage-based habits in to replace the responses um, that, have be- that have been up to this point, your fear-based habits? And then when we get into reflecting on your courageous life, this is the part where we're really putting it all in context. It's like, who have you been up until this point? Where did you start? What's the process that you've undergone? And where are you ending up right now? And then now from this new vantage point, what is it that your most courageous self wants? And it's kind of like before you and I like hit record today, we were talking about like all these, I know that your book came up, you know, and, and now you have like a new book on the horizon. And there was probably a point before you even got your first book deal where like the self that you were leaning into was going... I want a book deal, right? Like that's the big dream. Like can I just get a traditionally published book deal? And then you get the traditionally published book deal and you get it out into the world and then now there's this new vantage point that goes not necessarily what's next, like I got to hustle over to this new spot off in the horizon, but what about the the path I've just walked has actually built more resilience for me? What have I learned? What challenges have I encountered and then moved through? And then what is it that I actually want from my my path um, up to this point to inform where I'm going
2: next?
0: Mm. Wow. Well, I think that makes a a really fitting end to our conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me ask. Uh, What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh, I thought so much about this. Um, although the one answer to me was like super, super clear, and it was integrity, and and that actually, I think living a life of integrity requires a ton of courage because there are a million places along the way where, it, like, the easy choice that's a little less in, in integrity with who you are, or um, and I'm not talking about integrity like um, you you somehow become someone that you're not. I'm talking about like the easy choice as in like you're trying to carve out a path for yourself and then the job offer with like the really great salary comes in. So are you going to be in integrity with your ultimate dream or are you going to take this job offer, which is a little bit easier and kind of juicy, but not really actually in full integrity with who you say you want to be and the life that you want to live. There are a million opportunities to not Um, practice integrity to not to be asleep at the wheel Mm
2: -hmm.
1: being in integrity requires courage because it requires that you're not asleep at the wheel
0: wow um well this has been a, a really really thought provoking and beautiful conversation um i really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your insights and your story with our listeners where can people learn more about you your work and the book
1: Uh, You can head over to yourcourageouslife.com to learn more about me and the book or tribeclcc.com to learn about my training program. And I think I'm Kate Courageous almost everywhere else on the web.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
3: Planning for your next trip?